Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. You know the answer to that. Uh, I know in German, Ro is Rogan. Uh, okay. I know it's probably originates from some type of language. I don't really. Well, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying. I just call it damn fish eggs, caviar, whatever. You know. Most people use those. It's funny because most people that know about the salmon eggs are fishermen that actually just use them as bait to catch other fish. You know, they don't even eat them. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. So Zach, we've got Frank Tefano on here today. It's been fun. This is uh, you've been uh, you know making uh, quite a bit of waves in this carnivore community, particularly as of lately. And you've been doing so. Let, Frank, before we get into the details, let's tell us a little bit about your background. You know, I mean, I know you said you've been eating a carnivorous diet for six or seven years now, and you've got a you've got a background in the the culinary uh, industry. So tell us a little bit about your background, who you are, where you're at, and, and then we'll get going. Yeah, no, sure. This is this is super interesting because I mean, Zach, like, listen, I, I, I'm, I used to be really into athletics. I go running every day, but you know, to imagine the stuff you do, maybe in another lifetime for sure. And <laughs> Sean, but you know, orthopedic surgeon, I always did want to do biology med school, so uh, I feel like I'm in my own kind of realm when it comes to the culinary and the restaurant stuff. So, uh, you know, straight out of high school, uh, I, I didn't really have much going for me, kind of in and out of community college. Ended up falling into restaurant work. Uh, eventually, you know, front of house stuff like bartending, waiting tables, learned about food. Uh, at one point, uh, I took a drug called Accutane. And I didn't know at the time why I started having, you know, energy problems and digestive issues. Uh, it took me a couple of years down the line to realize, oh, it was the Accutane that caused it. Uh, but basically, you know, I went from this high carbohydrate bodybuilding diet and I was eating literally like three, four pounds of sweet potatoes a day and I had no energy at all. So I started exploring literally, okay, this bodybuilding thing, two hours in the gym every day, I feel like shit, how can I get healthy? And I started literally Googling how to get healthy. And this guy, Paul Check, his book came up, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. That turned me on to a couple of other things. Uh, one book was uh, Weston Price, Nutrition, Physical Degeneration, and that talks about the nutrient density, the vitamins of animal foods. Another book, Nora Gagatis, Primal Body, Primal Mind. And, you know, me eating all these carbohydrates and not having energy, I said, okay, animal foods are super nutrient dense and maybe I would have more energy in a ketogenic metabolism. So I kind of pieced things together here and there. And this was back in 2012, 2013. Uh, and, and back at this point in time, it was actually really, really popular to buy like whole animals on farms. You know, the paleo movement was kind of in full force. Uh, so I actually bought, you know, I bought a cow, I bought two pigs, I filled up a freezer, I had all this meat I was eating for, uh, and that was kind of my version of carnivore at the time was in my mind, a paleo keto diet. I actually looked up, I found out about the zero carb carnivore forum back then. But when I looked into the diet, you know, there were a couple elements that 
uh, I was like, well, it doesn't say anything about, it just says eat meat and drink water. But uh, for me, I noticed that the fat ratio I needed for energy, I noticed there was no mention of nutrients. It just wasn't, you know, it was a message that worked for me initially. But to me, it was, you know, being someone that, you know, lifted weights for years and years is, is so analytical about things. I was like, you know, there's more to it. And over the course of that six, seven years, uh, the first three or four was just me on the diet. And then I started making YouTube videos because I felt like I wanted to get a message out there. And I made YouTube videos for probably two years to get to about 3,000 subscribers. So I made, I made hundreds of videos. And every single time I go to research a video, you know, there's a lot, of, it's you know, an hour to research, hour to of thinking about it. So all that information that I've accumulated from different topics that I thought were interesting have kind of come to this point where in the last few months of my YouTube channel, making a video every day, all that six, seven years of information that I got from researching those hundreds and hundreds of videos has kind of come together. So that, that anecdotal experience, the research, the science, that stuff, it's just, and, and tying that into my restaurant and culinary experience as a bartender, as a waiter, knowing these foods, uh, you know, being a, a catering chef, I feel like I've built a unique thing. And of course, I get to be funny from time to time. Yeah, no, we don't have to be, uh, no, uh, no professional credentials I'm too worried about losing. <laughs> yeah, Frank, and, and I've watched some of your videos, you know, after I started doing this, you know, I can't remember how long I've been doing it. And somebody said, hey, check out Frank DeFano. So I watched some of your stuff. It's some very interesting, fascinating information in there and stuff that, you know, I learned from and, uh, you know, and some of the stuff that I had kind of seen and it supported that. And so you really push hard on nutrient density and you talk about the increased bioavailability and some of that stuff. So talk a little bit about that stuff because, uh, you know, a lot of people are under the assumption that, you know, plants are rich in nutrition mm -hmm. and we need a balanced diet to get all the particular um, things that humans need to eat. And we've always been omnivores because that's what we've seen for the last thousand years or 10,000 years or whatever people want to use as a frame of reference. But talk about the actual, how you, how you interpret nutrient density or, or what's, what's good nutrition? Yeah, this is really something hard to overcome for people because we've been told our whole lives, eat your fruits and veggies, uh, eat your fruits and veggies. I remember uh, when I was, I have very few memories from when I was a child, but I remember one time I was in my grandma's house in Queens and I don't even know who he was, but he said, I, and I was like upset at the time I wasn't eating dinner and I was a young kid not eating dinner. So this guy came up to me and he was like, you got to eat noodles, make you strong. And even at the time, I was like, noodles make you strong? That doesn't sound right. Uh, so, you know, these preconceived notions are so hard to get over. And the thing that I tell people to kind of just dispel this immediately is in every single group of native people or hunter-gatherer ancestors, the one constant was the presence of animal foods in some form between their diets. Uh, in Weston Price's book, you had the Swiss in the Lochental Valley, this beautiful like textbook fairy tale uh, valley. And these people would literally only eat rye bread and cheese for like half the year. That's all they ate. And they were getting their complete nutrition from cheese. And this cheese was made off of milk from cows on summer grass, very high in fat-soluble vitamins. And then the other half of their calories came from rye bread. Uh, so that was their energy source. But this rye bread energy source, I mean, the, the animal food variance was there too, but it was always an animal food in the place of an animal food. In the case of only eating rye bread, other groups of people like maybe South Sea Islanders or Australian Aborigines might have literally eaten thousands of plant foods. So 
replacing thousands of plant foods with one grain is a lot easier in regards to like foraging and, and things you have to do. But it really depended on the environment. You know, these people didn't eat rye bread and cheese because they, well, I mean, part of it might have been they wanted to, but they had to. You know, the Aborigines didn't eat hundreds and hundreds and thousands of different wild animal and plant foods because they wanted to. It's what was in their native environment. So when we look at these native environments, we see the variance in plant foods is specific to what they had access to. And then this ties into, oh, well, you have the first uh, nation, Alaskans, who really didn't eat any plant foods. And if plant foods, are there's such a variance between them and there's no specific nutrient to them, especially like people subsisting just off of rye bread, it becomes very apparent that we need to look a little bit deeper. And then when you actually look at every single vitamin and mineral, vitamin A, B, C, D, E, K2, omega fatty acids, minerals, the forms of these vitamins that occur in plant foods are completely different and they're not available to the human digestive system. When you look at nature as an ecosystem, it becomes really interesting because every form of life on this planet requires some form of energy, whether it's uh, you know, using an NPK fertilizer, like a nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, potassium fertilizer for plants, uh, the D2 that the plants get from the sun. Uh, I mean, but then there's also micronutrients that are missing in a lot of modern plant foods. But the point is every single living being uses vitamins in certain forms. And the forms that humans need are in the animal form. When a cow consumes grass, I mean, it's really interesting. If, you've, uh, if you guys, like, if you're watching this and you Google a video of a cow eating grass, they're like, they have this huge nose, they're sniffing the grass, they're licking the grass, they're, they're literally smelling the different types of clovers and grasses and what they like. And these cows, it's like me picking out in the supermarket, oh, this food has these nutrients, this food has that nutrients. Th that's what the cow's essentially doing with their innate sense of smell. And when the cow gets the carotenoids in the grasses, the vitamin K1 in the grass, it ferments these nutrients in its gut into different forms of the vitamins. And when those vitamins go in the cow's flesh, uh, whether it's for biological functions, just for the cow to survive the winter, or whether it's to be made into milk to be given to the calf, those nutrients, what we eat, are what humans essentially need. So, I mean, I could go into the specific vitamins, minerals, and what forms occur in plants versus animals and the bioavailability, but... Uh, you know, the one really interesting one to touch on, I mean, they're all interesting to, to touch on, but if you look at vitamin A and the availability, you know, a car and, and these are numbers off the top of my head, uh, the, car the rate of conversion of a carrot from carotene to, is like 14 to one, uh, that's in the body, but that doesn't account for a gene polymorphism. And the gene polymorphism can result in you not absorbing about, well, all of it in some cases. And this gene polymorphism uh, is one of them is 35% and another is 35% approximately. And you can have both of them. So now you've reduced your carotene absorption by another 70%. And then there's actual substances, flavonoids in these carotene containing foods. And what these flavonoids do is they actually inhibit the enzyme that breaks down beta carotene. So if you look at all this information on paper about vitamin A from plant foods into the animal form, some people literally could not convert it. And every single animal food contains vitamin A. And, and these conversations about these specific vitamins can, can be had for almost every single one of them in the context of animal foods versus plant foods. And there's nothing that we can't inherently obtain from the animal foods.
of course, you know, maybe there was an indigenous group that lived in the mountains that would come and gather plants for iodine. Uh, maybe there were specific purposes for certain things, but those are few and far between. The one constant is the presence of these animal foods that contain vitamins in all these indigenous diets. Yeah, I mean, and we see that with, with you know, the SNPs, the single nucleotide polymorphisms where people can't convert this. So let's talk about, I mean, because people will, will clearly point to guys like Rich Roll and Scott Jurek and these other endurance athletes that are doing well as vegans, and they'll say, well, these guys are doing fine. And so how do you, what do you say to that? And then conversely, well, we'll get into that later, but let's, let's switch in there now. So we've got on the, 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 the sort of the meat eater side, there's people like, you know, Joe and Charlene Anderson, who I'm sure you're familiar with, who yeah. all eat is ribeye steaks, and, and they're doing fine. So how do, you, how do you sort of, in your mind, play out what's going on with these people, and, and why are they successful, whereas other people may or may not be? Mm -hmm. So those gene polymorphisms obviously play into this. People have different tolerances to uh, absorbing certain nutrients. Someone with an MTHFR gene mutation, the methyl... Uh, you know, they, they don't convert uh, B12 as, efficient, as efficiently in their methylation cycle. So someone who has genes that aren't in line with this, I, I believe Asians in particular are very poor uh, with converting uh, in, in the methylation cycle. These people would fall apart on a vegan diet in weeks to months, like very, very quickly. Uh, and some people that last on a vegan diet for years and years and years, uh, that MTHFR gene mutation is much lower in Caucasians. It's like like 10 to 15%. Uh, but these vegans that are lasting longer, what's the metric that we're comparing them to? Is It's a stand, what a standard American dieter. It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And how long, you know, and then you have to ask, okay, how long has the person been vegan? What are they actually doing? And, and the one thing that really gets me is, you know, when someone says they're vegan, and we know, we know and, and I'm implying, I'm not implying that these people cheat on their diet. I, I don't want to say that, but you know, there have been vegans in the past that have come out and said, oh, I was eating meat for months and months and years and not telling people, or they said, oh, I cheated on salmon every three months. So granted, the person adheres 100% to the diet. Granted, they're taking uh, vitamin B12 methylated supplements. They're taking vitamin D3. They're using out large amounts of algae supplements. If they're doing everything how they should be on paper, you can still have issues with converting the nutrients. I mean, there's so many issues, especially in the omega fatty acids. Uh, the main thing is, uh, I I'm trying to remember the name of the, I think it's 6-deoxygenase enzyme to convert omega fatty acids, uh, omega-6 or omega-3 precursors to EPA and DHA and like arachidonic acid. That one enzyme is required for every single conversion. So when you're consuming large amounts of omega-6 fats, even if you are supplementing these things in a vegan diet, it's hard to say. But my overarching really simple answer to that is you're comparing these people to standard American dieters who have, you know, one in four of them die of heart disease and, you know, 5% rates of stroke, you know, the degenerative disease rate in the standard American population compared to these vegans. I mean, what a vegan diet essentially does is it lowers your risk of what heart disease slightly by a couple of years, but then you just waste away and get dementia. Uh, you know, there's so many, and I guess you would have to look at, okay, short term, this is working for him. B12 and neurocognitive issues, as I said earlier, depend on the person's genes, how long it takes for them to develop these issues. And the other vitamins in themselves, 
people are deficient in them anyway. You know, people go their whole lives with single digit vitamin D3 levels. And, and this guy, you know, I, in the context of performance athletes and, uh, you know, performance enhancing drug usage also is, is something worth mentioning for a lot of these vegan athletes and vegan bodybuilders. I mean, some of the, some, like, honestly, completely some of these vegan bodybuilders, it's almost a joke uh, for some of them. I mean, did you want me to specify anything, anything else in that context? No, I'm just, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, like I said, how we figure out why some people do seem to be successful, or at least, you know, better than the average person. And then we see some, you know, some people go on a vegan diet and clearly they get sick very quickly yeah. and clearly they don't do well. And, and as you know, most of them don't stick with it over the long haul. And then, and then we do have a subset of the population where, some of them will continue to apparently thrive, and then the, and then many of them will do it for ideologic reasons. They don't really care what happens to their health. They'll continue to hang on to it for, you know, mm-hmm. vegan for ethics or vegan for the animals. But I mean, I'm just wondering about that small subset of people that that are, you know, by most of us, you know, Zach's an ultra marathon guy. He would certainly concede that Scott Jurek is a is a well accomplished athlete and is doing something that's very challenging, and likewise probably Rich Roll. And so, I'm just wondering what is going on with those people. Are they just smarter about it? Are the, do they have some genetic advantages? You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, you know, is it like you said, Caucasians versus, you know, different, different uh, ethnic groups yeah. might have different advantages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think too, guys, I'll jump in real quick. If uh, when you look at like Rich Roll and Scott Jurek, you know, Scott Jurek for sure came from a really poor standard American diet when he went over to, to his, to a vegan approach. So like, um, you know, it's, that's maybe part of it. Like what you were saying, Frank, that, you know, when you go, like, we're, we're, we're arguing against one of the worst diet programs yeah. with a standard American diet. Um, and then I think both those guys, another similar they have is uh, they talk about how much time they spend preparing food and making sure that they have some of the stuff that they need, where I think the average person, they're just simply not going to give it that much thought. Yeah. And then, um, then you have some genetic variances, because then you get someone like Bobby Risto, who very much was a diligent, like, uh, like Rich Roll and Scott Jurek, but for whatever reason, it fell apart for him. So uh, it, it's certainly not a one size fits all, I think. Yeah. So that initial gut tolerance that you have to any diet, really, you know, going from standard American diet to vegan. Uh, I mean, I don't know what Rich Roll story is, but, you know, me, if I have a tablespoon of butter, I'll have cystic acne on my face for, for weeks. So that, that genetic tolerance is something that can definitely dictate, okay, you know, what is the person's ability to handle high amounts of lectins, uh, anti-nutrients found in grains, things that cause leaky gut syndrome. And I mean, Crohn's disease seems like to be the secret of the vegan community. And what's really crazy is, you know, in the past few weeks, we've had so many vegan very incredibly popular young vegan girls, Ravana, Raw Alignment, Tish Wonders, all of these girls are no longer vegan and their stories are identical. You know, they follow a vegan diet, they're going to the doctor for all these health issues, they get their hormones checked, they're in the dumpster. Hormones completely wrecked. Doctor tells the girl to eat meat and, you know, young girl, impressionable, in love with the vegan diet, says the doctor's wrong, goes to a bunch of different doctors, eventually, you know, eats meat and, solves her issues. These sto- we see these stories again and again and again, and every single vegan story is similar in a way that initially they feel good because they go from a standard American diet to a vegan diet. And by going from a standard American diet to a vegan diet, what you're essentially doing is possibly removing inflammatory foods, 
that you know, lowering your sugar intake and a lot of people would feel better on a vegan diet initially. Now, you can argue that a vegan diet is less inflammatory than a standard American diet in a lot of contexts, but you're, you're developing two significant nutrient deficiencies, B12 and anemia. Now, of course, there are other nutrient deficiencies that are present in a vegan and standard American diet themselves, like vitamin D3, vitamin A, vitamin K. We could talk about all the other nutrients, EPA, DHA, that people are likely deficient in on a standard American diet. But by going from standard American to vegan, those aren't as significant as B12 and iron. But you know, when your body is deficient in B12 and iron for periods and periods of time that are greatly attributed to gene, your genes ability to absorb those vitamins, that is a lot of times what dictates how long people last. If they are able to suffer through the stomach issues, the living in the kitchen and the toilet, uh, I, bought, I bought a mini golf set on my toilet for one of my vegan parody videos. It's, it's <laughs> comical how much time they spend preparing these foods. And, you know, can you say that, you know, Rich Roll and uh, the other gentleman, I'm sorry, I forgot his name, uh, are, ha have a lot of time and other people helping them preparing these vegan foods. Uh, you know, I was going to make a video, how to do a perfect vegan diet, you know, what supplements you have to take, what foods you have to eat. And it would, it would be super expensive. It would be incredibly time consuming. Uh, you would be eating foods that aren't really falling in line with what most vegans believe. A lot of vegans believe in oil-free, low fat, uh, not use, using minimal supplements, but that's not really what you'd have to do. So uh, to answer this question really from a, a factual standpoint, you know, you'd have to see what Rich Roll is doing on paper. And then you can say, okay, well, he just has a high genetic tolerance. Or you can say, okay, he's doing things a little better than other people. But most likely what it is, it's a combination of all of these factors. And uh, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, there are so many nutrients that are specific to animal foods that you can't argue against. And then even the ones that you can argue, it, it's a back and forth. But at the end of the day, the metric vegans have is, oh, can you show me that vegans are deficient in these nutrients. And I'm like, no, but I can show you that every single person in the United States is. So what makes you, you know, above them? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a fair point. And I think most people on, on a standard American diet are malnourished in some way or another. You know, we certainly, you know, that's one of the arguments. I'll say, well, everybody's low in B12 or everybody's low in vitamin D. And that's probably true. You know, one of the things I, I struggle with is, you know, how do we make the determination of some of these things. I mean, I, I find that sometimes some of the serum tests tend to be, uh, you know, dynamic a little bit. I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, I, I did some research on vitamin D and I found out that it's got a, you know, a 30, 35% diurnal variation. So if you take it early in the morning, it may be low, but if you take it at noon, it's, you're back in a normal range. And so we have a lot of these sort of, sort of things that are, that are challenging to, to determine, you know, vitamin status. You know, like I said, you know, if we look at vitamin A deficiency, you know, night blindness and skin issues and fatigue and all the other things that come with vitamin A deficiency, um, most people don't have that. I mean, most people don't have that, you know, and, and you get into these subclinical things and it becomes very difficult to determine. But let me ask you, because like I said, uh, I know you've been somewhat critical of people that, that pursue the meat and water only type of diet. And I, and, and I pointed out the example of you know, Charlene Anderson, Joe Anderson, Charles Washington, you know, the, you know, you know, the, you, you know, the usual suspects that are out there doing it and me to some degree. And, and while I eat a lot of red meat, I'll throw in some salmon once in a while, I'll eat some eggs and once in a while, I'll have some dairy once in a while when I feel like it. I don't, I don't, one of the things I like about this diet is I don't have to think too much about it. And, you know, with a vegan diet, if you're not meticulously planning and calculating and 
you know, supplementing like crazy, you're not going to do it. But what, what, to your view, what is the best way to optimize somebody that was pursuing an animal-based diet? You know, if, if you'd say, well, how would I do it? Because I, I think people want to know different options here. Yeah, that's, that's great. So just to touch quickly on the blood levels, yeah, blood levels versus, you know, we can't take a liver tissue sample of someone to gauge how many fat soluble vitamins they have stored in their liver. Uh, you know, CRM B12 tests are not indicative of tissue levels. Uh, you, can, you know, you can see all vegans and vegetarians have high homocysteine levels, yet their B12 levels look fine. Uh, vitamin A uh, tissue levels versus carotene tissue levels, that gets confusing too. You don't really know how much is being converted in the body. And uh, one time I put some vitamin D3 on my sister's eggs. I sneak nutrients into my family's food. And my sister gets a blood test the same day. And my mother calls me. She's like, Frankie, why is your sister's vitamin D3 like 200? And I was like, oh, well, no, if you take it in the morning, your blood levels are going to be astronomical because, you know, you have, and same thing with things like copper, like there's no real way to measure certain mineral tissue content. Uh, but that meat only, water only diet ties back to the gene thing. Uh, so when we spoke about how vegans have a hard time converting certain omega fatty acids into EPA and DHA, it's because of the high omega-6 content of their diet inhibiting that enzyme. In a carnivore diet, you're not consuming as, if you're not consuming as high omega-6, if you're consuming beef, you're not inhibiting that enzyme. So it's very likely, and I would say that it's almost definite, that the amount of alpha-linolenic acid in fatty beef is adequate and higher than any amount of EPA and DHA most people are getting in the average diet. So if, if you remove the, ome the inflammatory omega-6 from the diet and you consume the alpha-linolenic acids and the precursors to EPA and DHA that occur in meat, as you know, they occur both in meat and plants, except in meats, they're not packaged in that high omega-6 form unless you're eating really crappy chicken or pork, then you might have an issue. But if you're eating decent quality beef, then it's going to come down to, okay, what is your body's genetic ability to convert these acids? And I mean, if you think of an indigenous group, you know, there are probably perfectly healthy indigenous people that never got to eat liver or brains in their life because, you know, a tribe only, a tribe has a certain number of people in it and not everyone is going to have the liver or the brain. And animal foods in general have every single fat soluble vitamin. It's just the amount, the amount varies between foods, you know, Brain is incredibly high in omega-3s. Liver is incredibly high in vitamin A. But all the muscle, fatty tissue of the animal has these vitamins too in high amounts. If, if an, a group of uh, hunter-gatherers is consuming 65 70% of their calories from animal foods, there's no real room for improvement. And you know, when you look at indigenous groups of people that ate only shellfish versus ones that ate only bison versus ones that ate only finned fish, they're all in excellent physical health. And it's, it's pretty safe to say that those, you know, those tribes eating shellfish weren't eating liver and a lot of cases weren't eating brain. So uh, on paper, all we can really say is, hey, eat as many good quality animal foods as possible. And, and that's a great answer for it. I mean, the interesting thing about dairy is uh, dairy, dairy has every nutrient too, if it's raised properly, uh, especially raw cheeses, stuff like that. Yeah. And I think the other interesting thing about the whole topic with, uh, you know, animal-based nutrition in general is, you know, one of the counters I've seen from the vegan groups or the plant-based groups is that, well, you know, I've got a friend who eats meat and, you know, they have low iron levels or something like that. You ask them how much meat they are and they're like, well, they're eating it three times a week. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, three times a week, you know, 
like someone like myself and certainly someone like Sean is eating like way, way more than that, like more than that in one day, probably. So like when you're looking at just like the, the nutrient value of meat, you have to consider the amount that you're having as well. And when you're eating a diet that consists mostly of meat, you're going to be eating, you know, pounds of it rather than ounces. Hey, Frank, let me, uh, because I think it's so fascinating because, you know, there are obviously different people that choose different diet and some people are, you know, relatively healthy, Zach, myself, you, you, you know, probably you, you know, the needs aren't quite as high, but there are some people that are pretty darn sick and they come in it with all kinds of digestive problems, malabsorption issues, chronic long-term deficiencies. And if they were to, you know, like talk about, like, I've got this picture of salmon roll behind me, which I know you're a big fan of. Talk about some of these unique foods, like, you know, why you're a fan of organ meat, why you're a fan of, you know, salmon roe. I know you had a, I, I saw kind of a part of a video you did about fish, why it's considered a very good food. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about those things for people that just want to know beyond just eat a bunch of meat and as much as you can, because there's, I think some people might have issues where this may be beneficial. I, 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 I tend to be sort of of the opinion that we, I don't know who needs it for sure, but it can be a good option for people. So talk, talk about why you think certain animal foods are really superfoods. I mean, we hear about the acai berries and all the other superfoods that have oh, antioxidants, which are- Kale shakes. And we, yeah, we can get into that stuff. Turmeric I mean, shots. But let's, 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 let's educate people on these different particular animal superfoods, so to speak. Yeah, every, every quality animal food is, is a superfood. Uh, one, one thing to say is definitely, you know, meat in the context of studies, what is meat? You know, people eat meat with like bacon and eggs with toast for breakfast. They have deli sandwiches for dinner and they have chicken and rice for that's meat. That's the context of meat in studies should already just throw people off. Uh, one interesting thing about iron and cancer, you know, iron is a, a free radical. It does cause damage in the colon. But when you there are vitamins that occur in fresh animal foods that don't occur in cured animal. You know, when you take a low quality animal food, uh, you cure it, you salt it, you add nitrates to it. Uh, there's a, a, a direct dry fire drying process that turns these nitrates into these meat products into nitrosamines, which are carcinogenic. So you're consuming high amounts of iron in these processed foods, highly carcinogenic, and you don't have the vitamins that are required to absorb the iron. Vitamin A and vitamin C that are present in fresh meat are used to absorb iron. So these people are consuming meat products that don't occur naturally. It's like taking uh, a, a syringe full of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines, the carcinogens that supposedly cause cancer in meat, and injecting it into a rat at unrealistic amounts. I mean, if those rats were eating smoked brisket, they'd be the happiest rats on the planet. Unfortunately, they're getting a syringe of, of, what, of black carbon in their, in their, their veins. Uh, so... Uh, you know, there are people that do come in with very, very severe and very sick health issues. And, you know, when, when you look at just diets in general, you know, standard American diet is 70% plant foods, 30% animal foods. Blue zones, the zones that vegans love talking about from a uh, longevity perspective, have the same macronutrient ratio, 30% animal foods, 70% plant foods. So th there's a food quality tie in here. And I would say that 70 to 80% of people, that's the number I've kind of gauged from my anecdotal observation, 70 to 80% of people would be okay on an eat meat, drink water diet. There is a percentage of people that would not be okay. And I was one of them. It took me, you know, I had to make sure I was getting high amounts of vitamin D3. I had to make sure my fat was very high quality. I had to make sure that I wasn't cooking my meat. I was cooking my meat a certain way. Uh, I had to do very specific things to make sure that my health was optimal. So 
I would say uh, the way we could tier this is like, and from a culinary perspective of, of hunting an animal. So let's say you hunt an animal and you have a, like a, a corpse of an animal in front of you. Every single part of that animal tastes a certain way, uh, whether it's the liver, the brain, the, the fat, and that's gauged in palatability from a natural standpoint. You know, if you were a hunter and you sliced open an animal, that was raw in front of you and you were starving and hadn't eaten in, in weeks, uh, the, the fat would be the tastiest thing. The marrow, the, the fat, the brain tissue, all the fatty parts of the animal would be the tastiest thing. Uh, possibly if you were lacking vitamins, it would be the liver, uh, possibly certain adrenal glands and other things to, if you're lacking certain nutrients specific to those glands. The thing is, most people from a standard American diet in a modern world are deficient in every single thing. So you have to kind of, and they're, they're super, super, super inflamed. So you got to say, okay, whoa, this is way too much. Uh, all right, for, first of all, so the carnivore diet, just eat meat and water. That, that can remove the inflammation. But we have to make up for years and years and years of lack of nutrients. So uh, yeah, and it, I mean, would someone recover from their nutrient deficiencies eating only meat and water? Yeah, but if you incorporate those other organ meats, certain foods initially, it can kind of make up for it. It's like- you know, if I spent all day sitting at a desk for eight hours, uh, you know, I can't just go to the gym and walk for an hour. I have to kill myself in the gym to make up for that sedentary activity. You know, I mean, if, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, I mean, you probably run for, I can't imagine how many hours every week. So, uh, you know, and, and humans used to be active for 10, 12, 14 hours a day. So uh, when you're super active, all day, you don't have to make up for it in the gym. You know, you could go and do a little workout, maybe work on things that you want to look better, your six pack, whatever. But the same thing can be applied to diet. You spent your whole life on this super crappy standard American diet. Now you got to kind of really make up for it initially uh, in some ways. And, you know, when you have like a raw, unseasoned, fresh animal product in front of you, it's in its minimally inflammatory state. Uh, you know, if you let that meat sit for, weeks, months, whatever, you know, the histamine content can raise that can cause issues in some people. Uh, you know, when you feed an animal, uh, like chickens and pork, sometimes high omega six meats aren't good for some people. Uh, there, there are specific groups of people that do have, and, but this all ties into issues from, you know, past dietary history. It's really like, okay, how screwed was the person when they started? That's going to determine, you know, what level of diet, how strict they need to be. You know, there, I've had some uh, people that I've, you know, helped with their diet on the very extreme end. They have C. diff. They have these gut issues all their life. They can't eat anything. And these people literally need to only eat, like they're eating raw meat, raw fat, and distilled water. And then they can slowly start cooking and incorporating other foods. I have other people that just like, oh, it's what they, as long as they eat any, they can eat any animal food they want. You know, they can eat whatever butter they see in the supermarket, whatever meat, and they'll be fine. They'll be healthy. They'll be happy. This ties into, you know, some people, you know, drop dead of liver disease at 35 years old from being an alcoholic and some people live to a hundred. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how much of this ties into your, you know, your past diet, your past environment, your, your body's ability to handle it. And of course, people with, you know, chronic disease, big issues. Uh, I spoke with Dr. Darren Schmidt, uh, a chiropractor with a lot of clinical experience uh, in, in nutrition the other day on my podcast. And he was saying that most of the time when patients come to him, he, he gives them very, very loose macronutrient requirements. But if someone comes to him and they're super sick and, and, 
and they're really in poor health, that's where it's like, okay, you need to follow this. Otherwise, you might still have issues. Uh, That's my overall experience with that. Uh, Fish is great because, you know, when you're trying to source animal foods, wild caught fish, something labeled as wild caught fish, oysters, shellfish, crab, lobsters, mollusks, all of that stuff, it's essentially a nutrient guarantee. You know, if you're buying uh, any other non-wild meat, it starts to be, okay, where did this come from? Does it have nutrients? And it's mainly from an affordability standpoint because, you know, we know red meat is always very nutrient dense, but if you can't afford red meat or red meat isn't too accessible where you are and wild caught fish is, it's an option. You know, it's as with indigenous people and our native ancestors, you're looking in your environment. And I know it sounds silly to call a supermarket your environment, but you're literally looking at, okay, what are all the animal foods I have access to? What are my best options? And, and what can I afford? You know, I, I mean, I, I did a, a little tour of my local supermarket and I said, okay, this is good for this. This is good for this. Just to give people an idea of how to do certain things. And, and just, you know, basically the more you communicate with people, the more you educate people and let them understand what the risks of all of these things are, uh, it, it lets them make decisions for themselves. Okay, if you, you know, if you cook meat for this period of time, this is what happens to it, and these are the digestive issues that can occur. If you eat this type of fat, it might be too available. You might not produce bile and lipase quick enough. There's really just a plethora of information and way too much to talk about. And this is why, you know, as much as I like the eat meat, drink water thing, you do see people that it doesn't work for, uh, even if it is, I would say, a much smaller percent of people that do this diet. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, and that's been my, you know, like I said, certainly I've seen people that have failed on the diet, you know, either they failed to move, lose weight or they failed to solve their health issues. And I think that that is something that, you know, we should certainly uh, recognize. And I think people, some people think, you know, it works for everything. Although I've been very impressed by the number of people that get better. I think a large percentage of people get better and they, they seem to resolve a whole host of, of, of health issues. And I think that's remarkable. But let's, you know, what, what, you know, you're very uh, a big fan of this stuff behind me, the salmon roe. Why, why, why in that particular, why is that compelling to you? Yeah, so one thing to definitely mention is that I didn't say it was these people that go on a carnivore diet, they're still better than they were before. They're just not like fixing their issues, essentially. Uh, salmon roe to me, uh, I, I think it was probably originally when I read an excerpt from Weston Price's book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. Uh, they would feed the row of the fish to the, the nursing and pregnant woman for DHA. Uh, so I saw salmon row as the best source of DHA there was. And of course, animal brains have DHA, but that's not really, you know, I mean, it's illegal in half the states in, the, in, in, um, in America to, to even sell to get access to it. So I thought, okay, well, fish row, salmon row seems like a very nutrient dense food. And I was able to get my hands on some. So when you analyze the nutrient profile of, certain animal foods. Uh, the reason we, I call animal foods superfoods is because like salmon roe, liver, uh, salmon roe, liver, oysters, a lot of mollusks, all of these animal foods, they have every single fat soluble vitamin in incredibly, incredibly high amounts. The difference between like an oyster and liver would be, okay, well, oysters have a lot more zinc. Liver has way more vitamin A. Uh, you know, salmon roe has way more DHA. The concept between these animal superfoods is that they have every single fat soluble vitamin. And when you consume a high percentage of your calories from animal foods, you increase the overall nutrient density in your diet. And, you know, even though these 
native people didn't really consume, they consumed an average of probably 65%, 55% of their calories from animal foods, not 100%. But when you consume 100% of your calories from animal foods, you're giving yourself a much bigger margin of error from a nutrient perspective. Uh, so whether you cook your food, whether you choose poor quality food, I mean, you're consuming almost twice as much meat as our ancestors did. So there's not as much concern about not getting your nutrients. Uh, but salmon roe specifically uh, is incredibly high in DHA. And it's tasty. It's very approachable. It has, you know, when you look at the flesh of a fatty fish, it's incredibly high in EPA and DHA. Mackerel, herring, sardines, those fish don't taste too good. Uh, salmon roe. Uh, and fish eggs in general are a much better tasting product. And not only are you getting the DHA that's contained in, in the fish normally, salmon roe has much higher amounts of the vitamins as well. So if it's, it, it's either this. You could either eat the salmon roe or you could eat the whole fish. You know? And we know that, you know, I mean, I've done it on my channel before, eating, you know, filleting open a mackerel and eating fish guts. It, it's probably one of, you know, it's one of the grossest things you could do in the context of the carnivore diet. Although like monkfish liver is a delicacy, uh, cod liver is almost a delicacy. M most, if you're not eating the whole animal, salmon roe is almost a way to do it because salmon roe is a, a little tiny salmon in an egg, has the whole nutrient profile of the salmon. It's like if you shrunk a cow down to a bite-sized pill and you ate the whole cow. That's, that's a great analogy I like to make. So yeah, you could be like a nut job like me, slice open a goat in your backyard and, and put all the organs in jars and eat it over the course of a month. That's some really impractical stuff to do. Uh, but if you buy salmon roe and even something like canned cod liver has pretty much all of these vitamins in a very approachable form. Um, I say the same thing about dairy. If you can get really high quality dairy products, uh, Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese is a, a DOP, a designation of protection. That means that it has to be made in a certain way with certain milk quality. And Parmigiano-Reggiano is always made from, you know, usually grass-fed cattle with raw milk, aged for two years. So a food like this, oh, Parmigiano? Wait, 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 Frankie, boy. Parmigiano is just as nutrient-dense as eating fish liver? I'm down. Give me the cheese. So for me, the reason I like salmon roe so much is its approachability. Uh, people see it on sushi all the time. Uh, it's just, it has so many things going for it. Uh, from from that perspective, but you know it is it is seasonal, it is expensive, uh, and and all fish row in general is equal. Salmon row is more calories per gram because it's fattier, but per calorie, all fish row has the same nutrition. So you might have to consume like more herring row by volume than salmon row, but I mean, and and this is stuff they throw out. You could go to a local Asian market and say, hey, do you guys fillet the fish? What do you do with the eggs? Oh, they're in the garbage over there. So, you know, just people knowing about these foods and creating a demand for them uh, is really what will eventually make it easier for people to know about these and, and understand why they're important. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. 
They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah, and we were talking about that in our last podcast, just like we're just more or less talking about the sustainability of everything. And, you know, one of the topics that came up was the amount of waste that we have. And when you think of that, like some of these most nutrient dense products are things that get thrown away a lot of times. And liver was like that for the longest time. Uh, And now I think it's it's still pretty cheap, but it's, uh, it's at least out there. It's not getting thrown in the garbage can anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, This, uh, a fisherman in Alaska reached out to me and he was talking to me about just how, the amount of waste in Alaska is insane uh, because you, you have many different species of salmon. I mean, you have Chinook salmon, pink salmon, king salmon, sockeye salmon. But when this, this salmon season comes around, when they're allowed to get the fish, king salmon is like multiple, multiple times the price of the other salmon. So when these fishermen are catching the salmon, they're throwing the pink salmon off the boat. The pink salmon that you're paying, you know, seven, eight, nine, twelve dollars a pound for occasionally in the supermarket, they're throwing it off the boat. They don't want to see it. Uh, you know, you could literally, this guy was telling me, you could literally walk over to a river where the salmon are just caught there and you can harvest buckets and buckets and buckets of salmon eggs that just go to waste in the environment. You know, the, the amount of, you know, there's the demand for these products is not there for some of them and they're just as good as the king salmon but we've created a market in the united states where uh you know animal food i mean the overarching thing is animal foods are so demonized that you know there's no demand for quality really and i mean there's no demand for animal foods in general so why would there be a demand for quality and because of that to get these foods it's either it's like why am i paying so much for this product that's normally thrown off the boat uh there's a local farm i buy they charge $28 a pound for veal and goose liver and they can get away with that because people that are in the, the know that how good animal foods are and from a culinary perspective, those livers taste better. You know, goose liver, duck liver, veal liver are almost like from a culinary perspective, very sought after and desired. So these people are charging $30 for liver and I'm like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, they would have, you know, would have been in, they would have been happy to sell for three, $4 a pound. Yeah, I'll have to point out. Frank sent me a couple of duck livers that I have I haven't eaten yet, but I, they're they're. Oh, there's so. no. Way. Oh no. Oh no. I'm gonna have to I'll send have you to, some new ones. Don't touch those. <laughs> don't touch them, huh? No. Okay. I'll have to. I'll have to get to those. But uh, let me. Um, so this will be a little controversial because, um, you know, there's been uh, lately. You know, a lot of people are in this carnivore community now. People have different thought processes and opinions, and people are looking at different research and. One of the things out there is a guy named Dr. Paul Saladino, who I know, and I, I think he's, you know, basically, a, you know, uh, you know, doing some some good out there, you know. I mean, and I know there's been some controversy, you know, between you and he, but I wanted to not go into that part of it, but I do want to talk about some of the specifics around some of the science because, you know, some people are are really, and this is where I, I get into the complexity of how complex do you need to make your diet for you to be successful, and so. You know, we have people that are advocating, you know, we've got to have a particular methionine glycine ratio to, to, to prevent, you know, methylation and creation of too much, you know, homocysteine in our blood. And that's going to be associated with inflammation and so on and so forth. But 
I saw something recently where you, you sort of said, well, maybe that's not that mm-hmm. the way it works. And I, and I pointed out that, you know, in a low carb state, there's a study done, uh, I don't know, it's many years ago. And they looked at co-ingestion of glucose or galactose, which is a milk sugar and glycine absorption. And they saw when they didn't have the glucose or the galactose in there, the glycine absorption was much higher. So which indicate to me that we're probably getting plenty of glycine anyway, but yeah. I want to hear your thoughts on that specific issue. Not to, not to take Paul to task, but just to get different perspectives. Cause I think we're all learning in this situation. And as many people that want to have input in there, because I, I always, I've seen this over the years, you know, I've been around this stuff for many, many years and, and supplements and we see a little bit of research comes out and then the knee jerk reaction is everybody runs out and buys buku supplements. And then three years later they throw it in the trash and they never think about it again. So I, I just wonder if we're in another one of those situations where we're not, we're not all like uh, pretending we're going to be gnawing on tendons. I mean, you know, when I think about it, if I had an animal in front of me and there was a chewy tendon or there was a big fatty hunk of red meat that was, you know, I would probably preference that. And then if I couldn't chew the tendons, I might've thrown it to the dog or something like that, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, this is, um, there's, there's definitely a couple things to touch on here. So I, I'll, I just want to be a little bit clear and I'll try to cover all of them. Uh, starting with, the indigenous reference, you know, there are indigenous groups of people that did not consume collagenous tissue, 100%. You know, they also did not consume calcium. So, and they were in perfect health. So there's that off the bat. Uh, Methionine to glycine ratio, to my understanding, uh, Paul got the idea from a study showing that when you give rats glycine, uh, it improves their longevity because it's to do with the methionine glycine balance. But these rats didn't have glycine present in their diet. So, what has to be demonstrated is when you have glycine present in your diet, does adding extra glycine help? And I've looked at studies showing, okay, when you add extra glycine to a diet that is already has it present in any form, the excess glycine turns into oxalates in the urine and is excreted. Uh, this ties back to collagen. When you consume collagen in any form, uh, collagen converts to amino acids in the body. Glycine, serine, hydroxyproline. These amino acids require vitamin B6 to be converted. So there's a daily collagen turnover in the body though. So naturally speaking, the only source of hydroxyproline is from either daily turnover of collagen in your body, or you can obtain it from, uh, you know, a bone broth. But what doesn't make sense is animal foods already have decent ratio of decent ratios of methionine to glycine. And if you actually look at the, the pathways involved in the, the metabolism, the methionine pathway, glycine is off to the side. And glycine isn't even involved from uh, an initial input perspective. The amino acid serine is actually converted to glycine in this pathway. So, and, and there was another study I looked at where if you – they were trying to produce, I believe, methionine with serine and glycine. And serine was more effective than glycine. But when you combine both of them, it was slightly more effective itself. So the point I was making was, okay, if methionine to glycine ratio is so important, first of all, you, you would want to reduce your methionine. But even if it was, vitamin B12 and vitamin B6 are so much more significant in this metabolic pathway you, you would say, okay, eat some liver, eat, eat a high vitamin B6 food, and all, all the vitamins to convert collagen in the body are fat-soluble vitamins. You know, if, if eating collagen, you know, 
gave you more collagen in your body. That's like saying, okay, if you want your skin to look healthy, you would eat the skin of an animal. Now, okay, there, there is some truth to eating certain animal parts for certain nutrients to heal certain parts of the body, like, like brain tissue has DHA. So that makes some sense. You know, the brain is composed of DHA, but there, there's nothing in the skin or the collagenous tissue. Uh, it, it's how it's converted in the body. So when you consume collagen, it turns into amino acids. Those amino acids need vitamins to be converted. But the best source of vitamins is in certain organs. And my point is, well, the body likely has plenty of amino acids. You don't have to actually consume them. You're eating plenty of animal foods and plenty of meat that already has the amino acids. And the, the excess amino acids turn into oxalates in the urine because you, you only have so much B6. And I mean, oxalates aren't usually too dangerous unless you have a lack of D3 or K2 in the diet, but they are definitely linked to kidney stones. I, when I actually made that video, I had a couple people comment on my videos saying they took collagen and had kidney stone issues and that uh, I, I believe some people were even saying they had flare-ups uh, when they started taking collagen. Uh, so this is another, I mean, everything really ties back to gene dependence, but uh, even from a practical perspective, uh, it doesn't really make this doesn't just seem like something to be worried about. I mean, it's nice to make a hypothesis from a study, and but when you actually look at, okay, what did indigenous people eat? Look at the actual pathway. Look at the actual methionine to glycine ratio in food. and It, it just didn't make any sense to me. You know, one of the things that, you know, and some people think I'm unscientific about this, but I, but I, but I want to do is I look at the results people get and then I, then I try to figure, then I try to reverse engineer how they might've got there rather than looking at, we know about biochemistry and making these assumptions about what's going to happen to people because often it doesn't hold up. And one of the things when I was looking into this, I saw that, you know, the, the, the serine to glycine conversion that occurs is definitely subject to metabolic conditions. We sit with cancer metabolism. So if you look at the cancer literature in people that have cancer going on, they'll see a change in that, and that there's a different metabolism going on, and therefore there's a different conversion factor. So I think there's all kinds of checks and balances and compens compensatory mechanisms that we, 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 we have a hard time, well, I don't think we have a hard time, but most people fail to recognize that those things can occur, and so I think you have to end up looking at what's happening with these people. And I, you know, I, I think one of the things that Amber O'Hearn talks about, and, and I've talked about this too, is, you know, one of the problems with observing current indigenous tribes is, you know, they're just in a different situation than, I mean, they're living on the fringes of society. They've been kicked out of the, the they don't live in the, in the, in the plush, uh, you know, places. The reason they're indigenous tribes because they, they're living where no one else wants to live. And so they've, you know, their natural diet may not be their current natural, you know, their current diet. And so I think we have to realize there's a difference between um, surplus and subsistence and what they would, would have done in a surplus environment. And my thought is, you know, from a, from a human evolution standpoint, where there's probably periods of time, particularly ice age, different parts of the world where animal foods were in surplus based on the megafaunal population that we know existed and, and the ease with which we could kill them. And a lot of people think it was very difficult to kill these big animals when in fact, you know, they're, they're, they're actually quite easy to kill. You can dig yeah. a big hole and, and throw them in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of, you know, one of the things you point you brought up, which I think was interesting and we had Mickey Bendor uh, on the podcast. Oh, I don't know, almost many, I guess close to a year now that, that he was on or, or, or nine months ago. And he wrote a paper or was part of writing a paper called Man the Fat Hunter. And I think that's an important concept. You talk about the, the essentiality of fat-soluble vitamins. And I agree with that. Uh, that's why I, I, you know, I eat a lot of fat. I mean, my, even though I'm eating mostly steaks, it's still pretty fatty. 
and I get I get a fair bit of fat in there. And I think most people find they crave fat after a while. You can't do well in lean animal tissue over the long haul, and that's why um, you know when we were when we were hunting those animals, we had a lot of fat to choose from. So I think a lot of this behavior uh, that we see is often fat seeking behavior. Uh, rather than saying I got to eat an eyeball so I get so I get uh, lutein or whatever you know whatever yeah. you know you just eat what you eat what's going to make you feel the best and, and I think fat is is largely where it's at in many cases because the protein's pretty easy if you're eating an animal based diet you're not going to struggle to get protein but you are going to struggle to get some fat and so I think w- when people talk about what they threw to the dogs yeah they might have thrown the lean meat they might have thrown the lean meat away to the dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're going to prize the fattier cuts. And often the organs and the, the, the peri-organ tissue, the, you know, perinephric fat, the pericardial fat, the omentum, that's where the fat is on these, particularly on these lean animals. Or if you're, if you're in a mammal, marine mammal, it's blubber, right? So you've got blubber you can eat. Yeah, this is almost, this is probably one of the most interesting conversations you can have because if you think about what the goal of a human in nature is, it's to survive, Right. So obtaining food and preparing that food is literally your job. You know, if, if you took preparing food and, and taking food as a, as a nine to five job, you would understand these indigenous people. And I mean, that's, that's hundred percent spot on. If you, uh, in the, the book, the fat of the land, William R. Stephenson about the Arctic explorer who had those meals with the Inuits, uh, that the specific food preferences, they, they would, he, he literally had conversations with them and he knew, okay, they liked the skin of the pig. They liked, the the mar- the lower leg marrowbone of the caribou they like this of that animal in almost every single case i would say eight to nine out of ten the preferred food was a, f- a fatty tissue 100 percent on on some occasions they would say you know they liked the boiled head of certain animals but that's still fat uh, and they would say oh they liked the liver of the lock but then if you look up the liver of the lock it's a fatty fish it's a fatty liver so there, there, I mean, there are some stories of, oh, they would feed kidneys to children. Uh, th- there are certain stories of certain nutrients being used in developmental stages of life. But in general, the fa- that's when, you know, fat is not 100% accessible in high amounts. Uh, th- there's, uh, there's a great website. I can't remember the name of it, but it, it had all, every single indigenous food of Native Americans. And you'd go on that website and it said, it literally listed like a like hundred different ways they would prepare bear. And, and sometimes a hunter from like, I don't know, I'm just going to name a tribe, but a hunter from like the Navajo tribe might have killed, if it was a female bear, they might have just eaten the fat between the intestines and left the rest. Another tribe with the same female bear might have smoked the meat over sticks. Uh, and there's so many, you know, fried, boiled, smoked, seared, raw, fermented. There's no wrong way to eat an animal food in these indigenous groups. Uh, but they always prefer the fatty parts because humans need to obtain 80% of their calories from energy sources. So, I mean, this depends on lean body mass. Uh, obviously, you guys being performance athletes might be skewed more towards protein in some cases. But in, in these indigenous groups, it was about 80% of their calories from energy. So if you had a, a fisherman tribe like the Nurs, and they didn't really have a lot of fatty fish or access to a lot of fat, what they would do is they would supplement that 80% of energy from other plant foods. So they were able to obtain nutrients and vitamins and minerals from the animal foods. But in order to obtain the rest of their caloric energy, they would use you know carbohydrates from wild plant foods. Uh, but 
you know, the, when I think of, you know, just looking at the caloric density of fat, the, my anecdotal experimentation, how fat tastes compared to, to meat, it, it, it's very apparent that fat is literally what has made us human, essentially. Our ability to procure fat without having, you know, the strength of a bear or a tiger, you know, therefore we have, you know, less less neurons working on muscle fibers. We have tools and we use our intelligence to procure. Basically what I'm saying is uh, someone with our body size and muscular musculature, it's not natural for us to eat such high caloric food. That's why I believe we evolved to what we are today. We were able to procure these high calorie dense foods, fat. If, you know, if we were still eating just protein and lean meat, we'd still be in the jungle with the monkeys tearing each other apart. Yeah. And that's interesting. I, when we, we've had the, a couple of folks from the paleo medicina group on, and they were saying that two to one ratio of fat to protein is what they, they aim for, which is going to be right around that 80% range that you discussed. Yeah. I, I think I counted it was like 81.2% or something like yeah. that. <laughs> they must've oh, heard the same thing. One. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, I don't think that, uh, you know, any, you know, you got to hit it exactly on the money. But I mean, I think the, the, the concept that, you know, a, an animal based diet, fat is really where a high percentage of your calories are going to come from. And yeah, I mean, protein may have a different role when it comes to strength athletes and recovery for like what Zach's doing with endurance. Uh, so but I but I think that the emphasis on fat is well placed. Let me shift gears a little bit because we kind of touched on this a little bit. And we had a guy named uh, Andrew Graft on the other day, the carnivorous entomologist and we got into a little bit about raw food discussions and i'd like to see your take on raw foods because i know you include that as part of your diet and i mean i i sometimes you know just for fun lately just just to kind of gross my six-year-old kid out i'll take a hunk of raw hamburger meat and throw it in my mouth and chew it up as i and i feed it to my the feed the rest of it to my dogs but you know because i'm telling them i'm going to turn into a werewolf and i'm kind of kind of playing with them <laughs> my daddy's going to turn into a werewolf so I said, I got to eat raw meat so I don't eat him, but I'm just kidding with him. But talk to me about um, your thoughts on two things. So talk to me about uh, raw meat, the advantages or potential disadvantages, and uh, maybe electrolytes a little bit, because a lot of people have, have a, uh, and I don't know if you have an opinion, some people think salt is great and wonderful and we should eat copious amounts, and other people think, no, we don't need much salt, maybe we should not, maybe we should avoid it. So I'd like to get your opinion on those two things. Yeah, you could be the werewolf. I'll be a vampire. We got to figure out what Zach's going to be. We'll film <laughs> some sort of carnivore drama show. Uh, so I, I, I know I tie everything back to indigenous people, but they ate animal foods any which way possible, raw, cooked, fermented. And this is consistent across every single group. They always ate some form of raw animal food. They always ate some form of cooked animal food. They always ate some sort of fermented animal food. There is not one indigenous group that didn't consume animal foods in, in these three forms. Uh, now, there's obviously, there's a scientific way to look at this too. Uh, and there's, of course, the anecdotal way to look at this. I mean, I personally noticed when, if I cook a steak past red, I don't want anything to do with it from a, a taste perspective, but that's, that's, that's from person to person. So that's not a good example here. Scientifically, when you cook a food, each, I, mean, I mean, vitamins are susceptible to oxidation and heat. Certain vitamins are more susceptible than others. You know, vitamin C, if you cure a food and cook a food, you can lose all of the vitamin C content. Uh, vitamin B12, uh, water-soluble, is a bit more sensitive than you know, the fat-soluble vitamins when you heat the food. But the metric that I've seen in a study is if you 
cook a food, if you braise a steak in the oven for one hour, you completely kill it. You lose about half the B vitamins. You lose 20 to 30% of the fat-soluble vitamins. And you lose all the vitamin C. But that's not really practical. What I can say from the raw versus cooked perspective is what matters the most is the initial food quality because, and the amount of food you're eating. This ties back to you know, eating more animal foods as a percentage of your diet, giving you more of a margin of error. If you're eating 100% of your calories from cooked meat, you're going to get twice as much nutrition as someone eating you know, 30% of their calories from completely raw meat. Uh, that's definitely something worth mentioning here. Uh, and the other issue is meat freshness. If you throw meat in a freezer for three months is where it levels off. So the first month, frozen meat loses maybe 10 to 20% of the vitamin B. Uh, the second month, it loses another 10 to 20%. And the third month, it loses another 10 to 20%. After three months in the freezer is where the vitamin loss levels off. Now, I don't know if this study was done on you know, vacuum-sealed meat, but the main concerns are what's the initial quality of the product? How much vitamins does it have? And two, how long has that product been you know, out for? You know, was it in a freezer for six months? Was it this? Was it that? That's why, you know, if I go to a local farm and some guy sells me a chunk of grass-fed beef fat that sat in a freezer for six months, I'm going to hit him in the head with it because, you know, you know I'm not getting what I paid for. It, it doesn't uh, – I would – so advantages to raw meat. Uh, certain foods in indigenous groups were eaten raw. And this was back to their preferences where, you know, in, in that book, The Fat of the Land, one group of people literally preferred the lower leg bone marrow raw but the upper leg bone marrow boiled. So raw versus cooked seemed to tie into the food they were eating and what the nutrient content was. But then you say, oh, wait, but why did this group eat it raw and that group ate it cooked? So what we can really say is, you know, in the context of the diet, we can look at the food from a nutrient perspective and say, okay, liver has a high amount of vitamin C, so maybe eat it raw. Salmon roe has a high amount of vitamin C as well. So maybe salt it and eat it, and eat it quickly. Uh, so there's you know, the, the ancestral evidence, there's the anecdotal evidence, and then there's the scientific evidence that, that we can look at and determine, okay, what foods should we be eating raw? What food should be, we be eating cooked? Uh, and the purpose of fermented food ties in here as well. Every indigenous group fermented raw animal foods, whether it was the Alaskans burying salmons under a log for a year or uh, the neurotribe letting fish rot in the sun for a week. Uh, what fermentation does is it changes the bacterial content of the food and it increases the vitamin K2 content. Uh, vitamin K2 is very important for the mobilization of calcium in organs and skeletal tissue. Uh, so for me, the fermented vitamin K2 seems like the main link for uh, the fermented foods as well as the possible gut microbiome benefits. Uh, but this is like, I mean, this is like eating cheese, taking a supplement, uh, disadvantages are, I mean, this ties into, this doesn't necessarily tie into raw meat more than it does cross-contamination and issues with modern food. So, you know, there are problems with how we process food now, how we transport it. Uh, you know, we've developed unnatural bacterial strains. We've developed all these, these parasites that never happened. Uh, there used to never be uh, roundworms in Alaskan salmon. And in February, I, it was in, uh, in February of 2017, I think, was when the tapeworm migrated from Japan to Alaska. So these are recent things where, you know, our modern farming methods, our modern fishing methods are almost 
causing some foods to not be safe for consumption. Uh, so, I mean, I did, a, I, you know, I did a video talking about every single type of bacteria, what the concern is, but pe more people are getting sick from romaine lettuce than they are eating meat. You know, people are getting sick from eating vegetables and canned foods, and there's more salmonella and E. coli outbreaks from those foods than meat. And it's not even from necessarily the food specifically. Uh, you know, have, you, you have farm workers, I don't know if I say this, you have farm workers defecating in the field because they're being like worked to death. You have all these cross-contamination issues, uh, you know, with human fecal matter and a lot of the farming. Uh, cross-contamination is the overarching issue with the risk of raw food contamination. Uh, and of course, when you eat any food, your stomach has to adjust to it. Uh, you know, if I go out and have a dozen oysters and I haven't eaten oysters in a year, you know, stomach bacteria isn't going to be used to it. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, most people in the past had a microbiome indicative of their environment. If your mother's eating, if your mother's eating a certain diet and those, that substance is transferred through your microbiome through the breast milk, and then you're born as a child, you're likely going to eat foods that your mother was eating. So, you know, we're in this kind of unnatural environment where we're introducing foods to our bodies at, you know, which is completely unrealistic from a perspective of what we would have done in the past. Uh, hey, Frank, let's, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I want to just yeah. talk about where do you see the role? Because obviously not everybody on the planet is going to go on an, on an all meat diet. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Right. And many people will, I mean, you know, some, maybe more people will wake up and, and realize the nutrient density and, and, the, and the value of this and incorporate more of their diet, but they're going to still eat uh, some plant-based foods. And so where do you see plants fitting as a role? I mean, some people say, you know, we can use them as medications or, or things like that. Where do you see the role, a positive role for people using plants in their diets? Because I know if you're talking about how to design a perfect vegan diet, but I mean, how, how, would, how would somebody who's eating, uh, you know, an, an animal-based diet and still wants to enjoy, uh, you know, the occasional flavor or plant type food there, how would they go about doing that? Or what are your opinions on that? No, there's no such thing as a perfect vegan diet, but uh, th this always ties into the person's individual tolerance to the food. Uh, you know, someone might be able to go out and have a pizza once a week and be fine. But unfortunately, when you go on a very restrictive carnivore diet, you become a lot more sensitive to foods, especially if you haven't eaten them. So, uh, you know, for me personally, you know, uh, being in New York City, working in restaurants, obviously, you know, there's a lot more opportunity for me to deviate from my diet than some other people might have. Uh, you know, I'm, if I go to a restaurant, they might have a steak tartare dish that would have a bunch of like maybe five or 10 different seasonings in it. Uh, they would have a steak cooked maybe a certain way. I didn't like it. They'd have various animal protein based dishes with seasonings, herbs, spices. And yeah, I would eat those and I usually have no problem with eating those. So there's a big difference between going to, you know, a reasonable restaurant, having a protein based dish that has some seasoning or sauce or something on it versus eating a piece of pizza being that drunk girl in the meatpacking, holding her heel saying, oh my God, I need some pizza at like four in the morning. Like that type of stuff is, that's where, you know, if you're doing something that's on the extreme end of crazy, that's where you're going to run into issues. So you have to ask yourself, have I had this food recently? How inflammatory is the food? Am I allergic to the food? Uh, have I not eaten it in, you know, this period of time? And the, the basic message I like to tell people is, number one goal, increase your meat consumption, increase your nutrient density, try to minimize inflammation. And once you do that, a lot of the things that you're going to find out are through anecdotes. 
you know, maybe you'll realize, oh, I can't eat a whole tub of ice cream, but I could eat half a tub of ice cream. So, uh, and, and it always ties into what your goals are. You know, if your goals are just to be healthy and happy, uh, you know, the centenarians in the blue zones, they eat 30% of their calories from animal foods and they live well over 100. So as long as you have a reasonable amount of these vitamins in your diet and the inflammation in your diet is too high, isn't too high, you know, mainly, I guess one message I have to people is eat as much good meat as possible. Don't eat seed oils, vegetable oils at all. Don't eat sugar at all. If you follow those principles, avoid refined carbs, avoid vegetable oils, avoid sugar, increase meat content of your diet, that would probably fix just about every issue there is. That is kind of an interesting topic with uh, you just when you have a real like uh, more of a monotonous diet or a one-dimensional diet <clears throat> that uh, you know you, 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 your your bacteria are going to be really fine-tuned to that, but then also very unfine-tuned to anything else. And I guess, you know, you don't have to go back too far into history where, you know, you can basically count on you and your kids and probably your kids' kids eating that same groupings of foods or uh, whatever it might be for, for quite a while. So it wouldn't really, there's no need to kind of have a diversity of, of gut bacteria at that point. You just want whatever you need to have. And then when you think about that too, you see folks going on an elimination diet now and, uh, you wonder how much of that plays into that when they start reintroducing foods, because at that point you probably haven't eaten it for 30 days and you, you certainly haven't fed that bacteria that would feed on that. So I suppose the only good way to really do that would be to introduce it at such a slow rate that your body has a chance to kind of catch up before you eat so much of it that you have a negative consequence. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if it's, if it's an animal food and it's a quality wild caught animal food, it can work. Uh, I mean, one time I had some, uh, and like these New Zealand cockles, and it, it it sounds like okay, New Zealand wild cockles, good idea. It's not, you know. Look at the location of where the food is from. You know, I've never eaten anything from New Zealand before, so it was already seemed like a bad idea off the bat. And I've never had cockles before, so did I really expect them to sit in my digestive system? No, I was on the toilet an hour later. So if you're gonna eat something that you've never had before, or it's from a place that you've never eaten something from before, small amount, introduce it. But this isn't something that takes, you know, weeks of adjusting. You have it a small amount once, you have a slightly larger amount again. And then from that point forward, you know, maybe a day or two later, and from that point forward, you should be okay as long as you don't go too crazy with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's generally generally pretty good advice. Let's, I mean, just, I mean, we've had some great stuff. And I, I think one of the things that a lot of people watch your videos, I mean, for the good nutritional content, but you also have a lot of, uh, I guess, a humorous way of sort of evaluating some of the, the vegan uh, escapades. And so I know you talk about like, you know, a day in the life of a vegan diet and they're, they're, they're sort of, they're, they become sugar addicts, basically. I mean, Talk a little bit about some of the stuff you've done with, uh, with uh, you know, regard to evaluating certain people's vegan perspectives. Yeah, you know, you know, initially I'm I'm the type of person that I don't I would not do something to put someone else down to gain something positively from it. But you know, my viewers said, "Hey, Frank, can you do vegan critiques? Can you do vegan critiques?" There were a couple other people doing, so I started doing them, and people love them. And I figured, okay, if I can get the message out there that a vegan diet is nutrient deficient in a humorous way, it'll be better than just bashing on them in general. 
So when you look at a vegan diet and the ridiculousness of it and how they, they camouflage their videos, you know, they play this happy music, they use colorful things, they have this daylighting, uh, they use these buzzwords. And if you actually look at the foods they're eating, you know, it's pure sugar. There's no nutrients in it. These people have no understanding of nutrition. I have no problem with that. You can do whatever you want with your own life, but you're influencing hundreds of thousands of young girls. And what I do is I take, you know, from a almost scientific perspective, I analyze every single meal the person has. And if, I, if I'm critiquing a vegan video, okay, I'll say, all right, that acai BS bowl, all it has is sugar, maybe a small amount of some water-soluble vitamin C, uh, but there's no, no significant source of nutrition in it. And, and why aren't these vegans saying, oh, you need to supplement B12, you need to supplement algae? It's clearly not about health. And their message isn't about health. Because when we look at a vegan diet from the nutritional perspective, the moral perspective, the ethical perspective, I mean, there's counter arguments to every single one of those things and they just ignore them and dismiss them. And they're in their own little world and dragging other people down with them. So I've, done, I've dressed up in a crop top, like these girls do cutting fruit half naked in their kitchen. I've done that. And then I'll make jokes. Uh, phytic acid is an anti-nutrient uh, in, in, the, in certain plant foods that binds to minerals and takes them out of the body. So I would say, oh, I think it has phallic acid in it. Or is it phytic? I would like make these funny jokes that would be related to like uh, a vegan, like soy boy or something. And you know, it would be like an intelligent joke showing that the vegan doesn't know about the anti-nutrient, the problem with the food, uh, and then just showcasing that this isn't me making, this is literally what vegans do. I'm just making people aware of what I'm doing as I'm doing it. You know, when people, when these vegans throw 10 bananas into a smoothie or like not even, I think the dates are more ridiculous. They put like six dates in a smoothie and vegans say, oh, you can get your vitamin B12 from dirt. So I literally went outside, I took some dirt from my backyard and I put it in my date smoothie and I drank it. And I was like, oh, this is great. Get your dirt B12. So there's so many ridiculous things about a vegan diet that they're, they're harming people with it. And I have vegans comment on my videos. I'm a vegan, but I love this. This is hysterical. And they're like, oh, you're so right. And you know, what's, what's the best way to go about this? We know, I mean, uh, I'm sure you guys have heard the drama with the, Austra- the that Australian uh, cow got let loose and, and trampled a bunch of vegans the other day. But if, if you turn the tables on these vegans. Hey, hey Frank, hang on a second. I got it. That was something I put on my Instagram and I totally made that up. Just as, Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, I, thought, I, I thought you were serious. Fun. I thought no, you were serious. I did, I did it for fun and I put a little hashtag, <laughs> you know, true story because I thought people would get the satire, but so many people don't get that it was made up. So, I, you know, for anybody that thinks that's a true story, it wasn't. It very likely could happen. Uh, but I but I wrote it in a way that I thought sounded kind of somewhat believable enough. But maybe I should write for the Onion or something like that. But, but yeah, but no, no, Herbert the cow did not kill anybody. Uh, but it, but but it it it, it served its purpose. You know, it, it you know it kind of brought attention to some of the, to the idiocy of these uh, animal rights protests. You know, getting on farms and you know disrupting lives and 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 often they do injure livestock in a result of that. But but just to be on on record. That was a fictional story that I that I invented. So sorry to sorry to if I down. if I slept last night I might have caught that, but I didn't. So uh, it was I was working hard doing my video today, but I thought that was I was laughing at that, 
And then it just, I mean, I only saw it a couple hours ago, but uh, the point is that you have these vegans who are doing completely wacko stuff. You know, if anyone else was doing this, you know, they'd be like, obviously if there wasn't like a, a moral and ethical push behind it, it would be completely crazy. You see these women literally starving, emaciated for the vegan diet and people are pushing them on. What happens with an anorexic person is everyone saying, everyone says, oh, you need help, you need help, you need help, you need help. But a vegan, they're encouraging the negative behavior. If you, you, know, you, don't, see, you don't see me outside of a, a vegan restaurant eating steak saying, oh, stop killing bugs with pesticides, you know? You don't see people dressing up in gas masks with like sprayers outside of vegan restaurants saying, oh, stop spraying the plants. Like it would, it would be like completely wacko stuff. You know, if, if you take anything a vegan does and reverse it and look at that context, you'd think they'd be a crazy person, but it's essentially the same thing. I mean, that's very interesting because there's, yeah, I'm sure you're aware of a guy, you know, Gaddis or I can't, I can't pronounce his yeah. YouTube name, Sri Ridgers. Yeah, Sverige. Uh, it's supposed to be like, like Sverier. It's supposed to be Sweden or something. Something like that. But he's, he's actually doing that. And in fact, we actually are going to have him on the podcast to discuss that craziness. Yeah. Because I think it's just so interesting because when you turn the tables around, it does look absolutely bizarre to the average <laughs> passerby. But we, we always see vegans standing in front of restaurants, protesting, screaming, and even going inside and screaming at the patrons. And if we were to all walk into a vegan restaurant and start screaming about, you know, stop killing field mice, you know, you know, uh, tofu is murder. Uh, we would have looked at as very bizarre people. You're a dick. But, yeah. They think you're a dick or something. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, the reverse seems to be almost accepted. So I'm, I, I'm kind of interested by, by that dynamic. You know, it's funny. I actually, uh, I did a live stream the day before he got arrested and someone on my live stream asked me, Oh, Frank, what do you think of God is doing these protests? And I'm like, listen, man, I'm like, I'm like a five foot eight, Italian guy, short, too short and pretty to be in jail. And if I did this in New York City, I have a pretty good feeling this is going to cause conflict. And when you cause conflict, you know, or when you create this high tension environment with these vegans, something bad is likely to happen. So I said, you know, there's a pretty good chance if he keeps doing this, he might, there might be a chance that he gets arrested. Next day, he literally got arrested. So uh, that, that was a very kind of crazy, unique scenario, but you're, you're going against, you know, what we spoke about earlier, the conventional wisdom that fruits and vegetables are healthy. It's almost like everyone silently in their minds. A lot of people know meat is bad. That's why they're not doing anything about these vegans. They're kind of like in the back of their mind. They're thinking, oh, these vegans might actually be right. That's kind of what they're thinking. And the way vegans think is the same way. Vegans think, oh, I'm right. And these people are wrong. That's what they're thinking. They're not looking deeper into the issue and the problem is just education you know you have people who are experts in their fields of nutrition of agriculture um, moral and ethical is subjective but the people in their fields you know they say one sentence and it makes the vegans look like they're they're you know they're completely wrong but it's always face value what society views and then of course i mean we didn't really touch on the how crazy it is from like a financial perspective and, and how much money there is in these, in these plant products and how much backing there is for these vegans. Yeah. We, we, we had Bobby Risto on recently uh, a couple of weeks ago and we talked about that on some of these vegan YouTubers actually getting a sponsorship from these plant 
you know, plant proteins and, and processed food companies where they're actually, you know, funding them to do that. But interestingly, you know, when I talked to Gaddis about coming on the show, he said he was actually assaulted at a, at a subsequent uh, rally where, where a vegan protester, like, I think, dumped a bucket of paint on his head. I don't know if somebody, you know, physically hit him or something like that. So it's coming to, you know, there, there's this escalation, you know, and, and we're seeing it with these Australian protesters getting arrested and going on the farmer's land. And are they going to, is there going to be some human damage that comes out of this stuff? And I think it's, uh, you know, almost like watching a train wreck in slow motion happen, but I think it's going to happen. What's unfortunate is that they're completely misguided. They're, what are they going to local farms where they have grass fed animals that are living happy and healthy? That's more ethical than a vegan diet, you know? And it's because, you know, what they're looking to, to well, they're looking to hurt Vegans are looking to hurt, you know, big business, essentially, monocropping, conventional agriculture. But when they go to the supermarket and they buy their vegan crap, they're supporting what they're against. I, I, tell, I tell vegans all the time, if, if you're buying, you're, you're still supporting the, I mean, this is always, I just feel like I beat this to death on everything, you know. The moral issue, the ethical issue is, you know, it's always, okay, is it more ethical to, to ruin, you know, hundreds of thousands of square miles of land and kill trillions of bugs and insects and rodents. Uh, is that more ethical than a cow? Oh, well, I didn't intend to do it. You know, oh, well, is it better for the environment? We know it's not better. We know there's the environmental thing is very, you know, if you're a vegan and you're driving a car, don't talk about the environment, you know, <laughs> you know, just leave it at that. And then there's the, the nutritional aspect is not really up for the debate. Uh, vegans love debating the nutritional aspect of their diet, but you know, when, every single vegan is emaciated and, and fading away after a couple of years for the most part on a vegan diet. And there's, you know, factual information on nutrient deficiencies. It's just, it's really, to me, I, I say this like so much, how can people be so, and this can be said about a lot of things, how can people be so wrong and misguided and so confident in their movement? And, and then it's like, people believe it too. People are buying it, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, they, they, they do have the support of big business behind them. I mean, you know, certainly these processed food companies, we look at the alternate meat products, you know, projected to be a $25 billion industry by 2025. Uh, so, you know, I think they have a lot of media that's behind them for the reasons of profit. And I think, you know, like we talked about with the last podcast calling people useful idiots, you know, they're just basically advancing you know, ultimately a, a processed food agenda. And I think we see that. And so, and so the mainstream gets behind, you know, and then when they often quote, uh, I mean, somebody pulled this out that there was a, I can't remember which organization, American Dietetics Association or one of them that said, you know, you know, the one that says that vegans are, vegan diet is appropriate for all ages and life yeah. stages and all that stuff. And, and the, the committee that actually uh, produced that report, many of them on that committee were Seventh-day Adventists and yep. vegetarians and vegans names like, on uh, that committee, yeah. Craig, W.J. W. Craig, Seventh-day Adventists. Um, uh, this is a, I actually did a, I did a video the other day on McDougal. Uh, McDougal's oil, McDougal involved with the Adventists. He worked at a, an Adventist hospital for 16 years. His no oil, no oil idea is from Dr. Esselstein, who was a founding member of the Seventh-day Adventists originally. Uh, on that committee, uh, the American Heart Association was founded by Seventh Day Adventists. Uh, they, there was another one that you know the recent media blitz with the eggs cholesterol like three weeks ago. 
uh, eggs are bad again. Uh, that study, uh, I, I was doing research on it and the university that it came out of, I was looking on Google Maps and I was like, hold on, why are there eight Seventh-day Adventist churches by this university? And then I started looking into uh, a, a couple of associations here and there, and it became very clear that you know, there, there's a, a Seventh-day Adventist affiliation with a lot of these vegan and vegetarian things. So it, it explains a lot, but you know, there's always arguments for that. There's arguments against that, and uh, it's, it's something that people don't seem to know about either. And what's the, I mean, I don't know too much about the origin of the Seventh-day Adventist church, but it's like Ellen G. White was, got a message from God to not eat meat, uh, something like that. But she actually used to eat meat. So I don't really know. Uh, I don't really know what's going on there, but there, I'm sure there's a bunch of videos out there on the origin of that church, what they do and stuff like that. Yeah, if you actually check out Belinda Fetke, she's got a lot of stuff on on kind of the history behind it. She did a deep dive into it uh, when her husband, Gary Fetke, got targeted by the Dietetics Administration in uh, Australia. Was it Australia, Sean? Yeah, yes. Yeah, Gary's yeah. in Australia. He's in Tasmania. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah, Belinda came on, I think, in December on our show, and we talked about that in detail. So, yeah, we, we're all uh, up to speed on the, on the Seventh-day Adventist Church and how they infiltrated nutrition and influenced it and yeah, you know, there's a lot of that craziness in there. It yeah, is, I just it is I wasn't sure if you, I'm sorry, I wasn't sure if you talked about it on here before. I wouldn't probably wouldn't have gone too far into it. Uh, but, but you're right. It is amazing how many or how how little knowledge there is about that. Like the, you don't you don't come across it unless you look for it, and it's yeah. like it's like it's cleverly hidden. <laughs> cleverly hidden in in seven churches in a half half mile right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i actually saw your video that you did on the mcdougall interview i forget the guy's name who interviewed him but uh, um, that was like that was a perfect disaster if i ever saw one uh, no it was yeah and yeah, I, I, I felt the guy's, name, the guy's name was john duyard or yeah, Duyard or something yeah, that's it yeah john duyard yeah i felt i felt sort of bad for that guy because he seemed to be a mcdougall super fan and then he was as, petrified he was like this the whole time yeah it's like it, it, he finally he, he finally saw firsthand, I think, what, what was potentially happening. It'd be interesting to see what, what direction he goes after it all, although I think he's operating a little differently than McDougal. But, um, but yeah, that's uh, goofy, goofy stuff. There, yeah, there was a quote at the end of that interview. Uh, McDougal said, we would love to take you in for 10 days and yeah. brainwash you. <laughs> and it'll be the best money you've ever spent in your life it was like and to me that interview felt like okay unfortunately you know uh unfortunately the guy you know it's, it's it's horrible to see anyone suffer like this but you know it's safe to say it, it could possibly be related to his diet over years and years and years and years and what i thought was like wait this guy all right, he's, he's obviously he's lost he's lost it to some degree is what he's saying actually what he's thought these few years but hasn't said it that's what I was thinking. Like, is this, is this guy's true thoughts and intentions actually coming out in this interview? But he usually just disguised it as, uh, you know, him screaming about the Bible. Like, I'm sure McDougal 10 years ago wouldn't have been screaming about the Bible. But is that what his true intent? Is that why he's truly disguising it as research and camouflage and doing all these things because of other intentions? And that's the only thing that really makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, if, if anyone watches that, it just gets progressively worse as you get halfway to it to the end. And uh, the, the, the part that I was really curious about 
was when he quoted the cowspiracy figure of 51% of uh, greenhouse emissions coming from cows, which, you know, that's even been retracted by the people who put the study together in the first place. So it's like at that point, when you're dealing with a doctor, it's almost got to be like willful, willful ignorance or just, you know, outright lying about something like that. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, that this is, it's what's crazy about this is this guy blows it and you haven't heard any other vegan talk about it. They're just like, they're ignoring it. They're pretending it never happened. And so there's two groups of vegans. The smart ones aren't touching it. The stupid ones are praising him still for some reason. Yeah. I mean, as I said, when I, when I comment, I, I just feel sorry for the guy and you know, you, you, you hate to see anyone suffer like that. I mean, dementia is not a, uh, you know, is not a, not a good way to be. And, you know, I don't know if, if it's too late for him to do that, to turn it around. I mean, I suspect it probably is. I think he's ideologically so bought into it that, that, you know, he's just gonna, he's just gonna continue to decay. And we'll see him kind of tragic, tragically play out over the next couple of years as we already seem to be seeing that. Um, Frank, tell us what you got coming up. I mean, I know you got some things in the works. I mean, you're still you're growing your YouTube channel. You're getting you get more and more people checking it out. You get a lot of people that are supporting what you do. Um, what what where can people find you? And you know what's what's on the road for the next you know next year or so for you if you've got any any concrete plans yet? Yeah, I mean, there's I definitely got a couple of those. So YouTube.com/slash/c/slash/FrankTafano. Uh, you know, my, my main struggle has just been working incredibly hard on my YouTube channel, getting out a video every single day for you guys. Uh, that's been my main focus. Uh, one of my priorities is definitely uh, I'm, I'm trying to put a book together uh, based around, you know, kind of like uh, tying in carnivore in, in a practical uh, standpoint, just to touch on things that, uh, you know, kind of like not going too in depth, but just have some sort of, you know, established my ideas like kind of what we talk, talked about in this podcast just into a book form essentially just to have something on paper uh, that's my goal by the end of this year uh, outside of that uh, I'm looking forward to you know the YouTube channel growth seeing where the carnivore diet goes and and maybe even doing uh, some sort of like catering stuff getting more involved in steakhouses oh that's another thing I'm doing is uh, um Delmonico's, a famous New York City restaurant, is the you know, origin of the New York Strip. So that's my second goal. I'm looking to do a pilot series. I mean, this is some of it's related. I mean, the New York Strip episode is obviously carnivore, but it's just food in general. So I'm looking to just try to get involved in, uh, you know, a couple different entertainment venues and see where it sticks and then roll with that for now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good stuff. And I think, uh, you know, just in this, as this, sort of carnivore community continues to grow and expand it's nice to have a bunch of people that are that are i think you know doing good things and uh, you know like i said my goal is to you know hopefully align a lot of people up that understand that animal-based nutrition is so essential for good human health uh and, and there's a bunch of players in there whether it's the, the producers that the, the you know the local cattle ranchers the local farmers uh, the people that are on the political side, you know, and kind of align all these things together, and, and hopefully we can, you know, act in a fashion that's going to get that's going to move the needle in a policy way. Because right now the the vegans are they're doing well. I mean they're they they've organized. They've got people in high places. Uh, they've they've uh, got their their the literature they want in the, in the publication in the scientific realm, and they've got that they can fall back on. 
you know, arguably flawed as it is, that it's still there. And so I think we have to, uh, we've got a double time to get there. And so hopefully as many people in this community can sort of realize that, that, realize yeah. that it's more than, it's bigger than just one person. It's, it's an entire, you know, it's an entire thing because I, 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 I've got little kids and, you know, hopefully well, maybe one day you'll have your own little kids and you'll be looking for their future, you know, and down the road and, and trying to, trying to make sure they, they have a chance. So anyway, that's my thought. Yeah, my last note on my last note on that is, if one thing prevails, when the when people eat meat, they get happy. If if they that's what we have going for us, people go on a vegan diet, they shit their pants and they go sterile. People go carnivore, they're happy, they're healthy, they feel good after eating the food. Yeah, that's a good that's a good close. You know, eat meat, be happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's that's powerful. It really is. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.